All right, everybody, welcome. How are we doing? Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. If this is your first time to Remnant, we're glad you're here. Uh, if you're uh, uh, part of our family, we're glad that you're here as well and those online. Um, I, I talk a lot about the purpose of the church. I talk a lot about what God wants to do among his people. And uh, we're in a series about the Holy Spirit. Um, and we've been talking, just to refresh your memory, because we've had some weeks off, we've been talking about a point in our spiritual walk. Now, as soon as you put your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you and your sins, as soon as you accept him as your personal savior and you repent and you turn to him, you receive the Holy Spirit and the scriptures tell us that you are at that moment a new spiritual being and that you have eternal life. But then Jesus told us something just totally amazing. He said, look, I'm going to put my spirit in you. And while you're here, you're going to grow. You're going to uh, surrender more. And the more you surrender, the more my spirit will come through you. And the more people see that, the more they'll see me. And so we've been talking about what it means to be spiritually mature or maturing. None of us get there on this side of heaven. But every day, the scriptures tell us, look, if you'll just surrender a little bit more and allow God to do in your life what the Holy Spirit wants to do, you will day by day become more and more transformed to be more like Christ. And we've been talking about there's a moment in your spiritual walk, I believe, where you have to sort of get to the point where you go, okay, I'm all in. I'm all in. I don't even know what that means exactly. God, I don't know what you want to do with my life, but if I'm going to follow you, I'm all in. And that's what we've been talking about. You get to a point where you say, you know what, I'm no longer doing religion. I'm no longer doing church. I'm no longer just doing my daily Bible study. There's a flashpoint moment in your life when you have to realize and you become aware because the Holy Spirit prompts you that God's calling you to a higher place. That he's calling you to a place where you can surrender to the Holy Spirit and with everything in you say, God, I'll do anything, anywhere, any cost, any time. And once those moments happen, you know you'll never be the same again. Jesus, as he ascended to heaven, he said, he told the disciples, look, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I need you to wait. Don't go do anything on my behalf yet. You're not ready. Don't go out and tell, just go to Jerusalem and wait. And they did. And they went to the upper room and they prayed. And Jesus had told them, you'll receive power from on high. They had no idea what that meant. But then as they were praying, tongues of fire fell on the disciples in the upper room. There were about 120 of them. And they began speaking in foreign languages that they did not know. Known languages, just previously not known to them. The key to this moment was not that they were speaking in tongues. Almost every time people tell this story, they talk about, oh, they were speaking in tongues as if that's important. It's not that they were speaking in tongues, it's what they were speaking in tongues that is the critical part of this moment. Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now note that it's the Holy Spirit who gave them utterance. Essentially, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through them to other people. The Holy Spirit doing the work Spirit-filled believers being used as tools through the Holy Spirit to reach other people. It's important to understand. They were not speaking in tongues because they were doing it. They had a voice box and the Holy Spirit decided to use it. In that moment, the Holy Spirit used them to do what he desired to do. Now, this is true every time the Holy Spirit works his gifts in any of us. He chooses who he will use, how he will use them, which gift he's going to give them for a specific spiritual need that is needed to be met in that moment. True gifts of the Holy Spirit are never given to benefit or bring attention to the person expressing the gifts. So the disciples were reborn spiritually, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke through them in many different known languages. Now, this is where we get sidetracked. We focus on the fact that these Spirit-filled people were speaking in tongues as if speaking in tongues was the point. The reason they were speaking in tongues had nothing to do with them. Remember, this occurred at Pentecost. Pentecost occurs 50 days after Passover. It's a Jewish feast. It's one of the travel feasts. If you're a Jewish person, you are expected to come to Jerusalem at Passover and then come back 50 days later at Pentecost. The entire city is full of people. It's to celebrate the day that God gave Moses the Torah on Mount Sinai. The feast itself is called the Feast of Weeks. It's a solemn feast and it requires every Jewish person travel to Jerusalem and offer the first fruit of the wheat harvest. So the city of Jerusalem is full of people, people from all over the known world. They've come to the feast, people who were Jewish, those who were Gentiles. They came to bring the first fruit of their harvest to offer it to God. On the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, the first fruit of the new church was gathered by Christ. With the promise and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, the first fruit under the new covenant was this group of disciples. Just as people were bringing the wheat offering to God, these people had offered themselves to God. Jesus had promised a new covenant. He promised that people would have a new spiritual life. The people in the upper room were evidence of the harvest that was to come, you and me. They were the first fruit of what God was now doing in the, in, on earth under the new covenant. The Holy Spirit had come and would lead all of us home. Jesus, the bread of life, was bringing new life at the Feast of Wheat. 
And the first fruits were offered to God. So Jesus kept his promise. Those in the upper room, about 120 of them, experienced a new birth. They became now spiritual beings having a human experience. But when Christians talk about this moment, all they seem to talk about is that they spoke in tongues. As if speaking in tongues was the point. Now this is where I think many people get off track, and we're going to talk about this a lot during this series. The point was not that they spoke in tongues. It's just a means to an end. It wasn't the point at all. Last week, we spoke about how the Holy Spirit always glorifies Jesus and never brings attention to himself. The Holy Spirit always points to Jesus, always glorifying Jesus. Everything he does is laser-focused on pointing you and me to Jesus. Anytime you see the Holy Spirit do anything in Scripture, give gifts, grow fruit, teach truth, convict us of our sins, you know and can know that the point is and always will be to glorify Jesus. It's never about the gifts. It's about what those gifts are used for to glorify Christ. I'll repeat this over and over in this series. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. He doesn't give spiritual gifts like healing, discernment, prophecy, tongues, and others so that you can focus on those things and claim to own them. They're always given to allow you and me to be a conduit for the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do in that moment with somebody else. The, the purpose of the gifts is not you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit going through you and those gifts impacting people who need to see Jesus glorified. When spirit-led believers focus on the gift itself, they miss the point. The gift is never the point. When people say, come look at me, I have the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. Look at how spirit-filled I am. I can assure you, you can con just confidently stay home. Spirit-filled people, people truly surrendered to the Holy Spirit would never make the Holy Spirit or gifts the main point. The Holy Spirit would not allow them to. If you're fully surrendered to the Holy Spirit, the last thing the Holy Spirit's gonna want you to do is bring glory to him or the gifts that he gave you. He doesn't want that. He wants you to see that he gave you that gift in that moment to help somebody else see God glorified. If you wanna discern if a gift is truly of the Holy Spirit, ask yourself who is being glorified in this moment. If it is the Holy Spirit himself, the person saying they have the gift or the gift itself, you can dismiss it. True works, gifts, and actions of the Holy Spirit always, always, always glorify Jesus. If you walk in a room and something happens that's supernatural, that's a spiritual gift, your first response, if it's of the Holy Spirit, would be, wow, isn't Jesus incredible? Not aren't they cool, they have a gift. It's simple, really. The Holy Spirit in you will discern this for you. If, if something's occurring to you and it's a spiritual gift that's being played out in a community, small group, whatever, church, the Holy Spirit in you will either resonate or reject it like that. You just gotta be in tune to it. 
your mind will want to pursue it. What will happen is you go, man, that could be cool. What if that, wow, that's really cool. That guy could do that. I wonder if I could do that gift. I wonder if I had that gift. Would that mean I'm really saved? Because I kind of wonder if I'm really saved. But if I had a gift of the Spirit, then I would have to be saved. And your mind starts doing all this stuff. And the Spirit in you is going, no, this isn't me. You got to learn to pay attention to that voice, and we'll talk about it. So at Pentecost, the Spirit fell on the disciples in the upper room. Why did they speak in tongues? The Holy Spirit could have had them all prophesy. They could have all told the future. They could have brought a mass healing moment to the people in the streets. Yet he chose to have them speak in tongues. Why? Why that gift? Because right outside the room, in the streets, were people from every nation, all cultures. They'd come to Jerusalem for the feast. They didn't speak the native Jewish tongue. If you're going to reach those people, you had to speak their language. They needed to hear about Jesus. Acts 2.11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Don't miss that. They're telling the mighty works of God. Bingo. That's why the gift is there. To reach people who otherwise would have no idea what they're talking about. So these people have come from all over. They get to the streets of Jerusalem and all of a sudden, 120 people pour out in the early morning or morning hours, worshiping God and praising God and they hear it in their own language. Because the Holy Spirit gave them the gift in that moment not to glorify him, not to glorify the disciples, but to show Jesus to people who didn't know him. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? No need to stop there. We've been in the series before where I've talked about Galilee and how Galilee was, I'm going to offend some people here. Uh, Galilee was like Arcadia. It's over there. It's not really here. It's not as sophisticated, perhaps. It's different. It's rural, okay? Now, if you're from Arcadia, I love Arcadia. It's a wonderful place. But it's rural and it's different than Sarasota, right? We can agree on that. So somebody from Galilee speaking in a foreign language was particularly unusual. Remember that um, they told Jesus, what, what good could come from Nazareth, Galilee? What good could come? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The Holy Spirit was drawing hearts to him. By personalizing the message, each in their own language, he had their full attention. But something else very interesting happened in this moment. You see, when the Holy Spirit moves in the midst of fallen people, there's always one or two responses. People either draw near to him or they mock him. Whenever the Holy Spirit is manifested among people who don't know Christ, there's one of two responses. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. 
You see, the stage is set now. The Holy Spirit is moving in this moment to reach people for Christ. We're in the midst of the most incredible first harvest of the new covenant and the new church and the followers of Jesus. He's going to use Peter to bring glory to Christ and to reach those who would be willing to listen. Men of Israel, hear these words, Peter said. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter says, look, you crucified Jesus. I denied him three times, but you murdered him. Just to be sure they understand him, Peter repeats it. Acts 2.36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Notice something here as well. The normal response of the flesh is to immediately argue with the truth of the Holy Spirit. I don't care who you are, what you're going through. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you, your immediate response is to deny, deflect, and move away. That's what happens in the flesh. So you move to, no way, I didn't, I didn't do that. I didn't crucify, the Romans did that. We can't even give the order for it. The Romans did it. it, wasn't me. But for those the Holy Spirit was drawing in, for those who were beginning to experience the presence of God in this moment, even though the words were convicting, there was something about them that was true. And there's a group of people in that audience who knew that. The Holy Spirit had prepared their hearts to receive what their mind, their flesh would reject. That's why I tell people I've never saved anyone. The Holy Spirit saves people, not me, not you. None of us have saved anybody. This church has never saved anyone. The Holy Spirit in this church has saved people. He's the one that draws people. He's the one that gets you to listen to the... He's the one that when you hear what you think is crazy goes, hold on a minute, you might want to pay attention. There's something true about this. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. How does the work of the Father get done in the new covenant? Remember, Jesus just said, or Peter just said about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit or that God's work went through Jesus. Well, now God's work is going through you and me. Everything done on our planet since Jesus left is being done, moved, motivated, and acted on by the Holy Spirit. John 16, 8, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He convicts people we don't. We present the truth of the word of God. That word has power. And as a result, those with the Holy Spirit in them hear what the Holy Spirit wants to show them in those words. 
That's why when I preach, you see so many scriptures up here. I don't want you to hear my words. I want you to see the words of God. They're the ones with the power. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, speaking through Peter, tells this audience, let all the house of Israel, let all the Jewish people know for certain that you crucified Jesus. God made him Lord and Christ. No doubt he was the Messiah. You guys blew it. That's his message. That's his sermon to draw people to Christ. What would be your response? I mean, think about it. If you're in that crowd, what would your response have been? Well, in our flesh, we say things like, well, he should have made it more clear who he was. How how were we supposed to know? Pilate told us to, we were just following orders. Have you ever heard German people try to explain the Holocaust? Or northern and southern slave owners try to explain what happened? Or our nation try to explain what happened to the Indians? They all have excuses. They point anywhere but at themselves. In our flesh, we're great at making excuses and blaming other people. But when the Holy Spirit is present, when we feel the connection and the love and the presence of the Holy Spirit, there's only one response. In that context of acceptance, we can agree with what the Holy Spirit wants to teach us, Acts 2.37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Don't miss this. There's a group of people, a very large group. Many have heard Peter talk about Jesus and have rejected, mocked, turned away, saying he's drunk. But within that bigger crowd, there's a group of people. And they know something's up. They know that somehow this message is real. This message is true. They're feeling something in them and they're drawn to it, not to reject it. And because they're drawn to it, they begin to feel the love of God. And because they have the acceptance and love of God, they can now maybe admit that they did have a role. They were cut to the heart. That's the only place the Holy Spirit really worked. We want to process in our mind, but the Spirit wants to transform our heart. They had the truth, but this time the Holy Spirit made sure they didn't just hear it in their heads. They didn't just get it in their heart. It cut their heart. They were cut to the core by the truth of what Peter had said. In that moment, they realized what they had done. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Interesting, they said to Peter and the disciples, what shall we do? Notice that the Holy Spirit not only spoke through Peter, but chose Peter for this message. Peter, they had heard about him. This is a small place. This just happened 50 days ago. Peter denied Jesus in front of a whole bunch of people. They knew that. They had all seen it or heard about it. They knew that he knew about forgiveness. If there's anybody that can speak on God bringing forgiveness into your life, it's Peter. He's not only got the message of the Holy Spirit, he's the perfect messenger of the Holy Spirit. And that's true every time the Holy Spirit works. 
The Holy Spirit will give me messages to teach to you that aren't messages necessarily that you might have to talk to your friend. They're, they're different. The Holy Spirit uses each of us in that way. But they knew Peter had learned about forgiveness. Of the disciples, he knew more than any of them what it meant to repent and be forgiven. The Holy Spirit doesn't always just pick the message. He also picks the messenger. So what shall we do, they said. What, what do we do? Don't miss the emotion in that question. Oh my God, we killed the Messiah. What do we do? We're doomed. The emotion in that moment, what they're really asking is, is there any hope for us? Have we done the unforgivable? Is there any hope? We're doomed. We murdered the Messiah. Surely that's an unforgivable sin. Imagine that moment when you realize that everything you've been doing in your life is against the desires of God. God was doing something amazing in their midst. God was here. The Messiah they'd been waiting for had come and they missed it. Not only did they miss it, they tried to stop what God was doing. Their lives had been lived against the purposes of God. And now the Holy Spirit is revealing that truth to them. And that truth cuts to the heart like a knife. There's nothing they could do. It was a total eclipse of the heart. Have you been there? I have. I remember the day that I realized I was fighting against God. That my kingdom could not coexist with his. That the worship of me only displeased him. And that it put me as one of his enemies. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter made it really simple. No, you're not doomed. But here's what you have to do. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Simple. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Nothing about praying a prayer for Jesus to come into your heart. Nothing about going to a bunch of classes. Nothing about going to attend church or cleaning yourself up or learning some Bible verses. Three steps. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. Notice that the first two are actions you do. The third is a promise. You repent. You get baptized. Those are action steps. And then God's promise you will receive the Holy Spirit. Not you might, not you could if you clean up enough, not if you give enough service or volunteers or money. No, he says you will. It's certain, a promise of God. You repent, you get baptized, you'll receive. Simple, but we have one problem. We have a Western mind. And it's so hard for us to accept simple things. Can I be a Christian without being baptized? Can I be a Christian without repenting? Can I be a Christian without receiving the Holy Spirit? Now on this baptism thing, do I have to go under the water or can I just sit in a little bit of water? Does it have to be in public? Now receiving the Holy Spirit, is that in me already to make me repent? When does that happen exactly? 
Every time I hear these questions, I want to ask, why do you ask? Because they didn't ask. They just obeyed. Oh, we need to repent. Let's repent. They only asked one question. What shall we do? They didn't debate it. They didn't discuss it. They repented and got baptized and received the Holy Spirit. Just as Peter said, they needed to just do it. And they did it before Nike branded it. But we'd rather intellectualize it. We'd rather speculate, ask a bunch of questions. Did they really have to get baptized? If they died before they got baptized, are they still saved? Do they have the Holy Spirit? I thought baptism wasn't involved in salvation. How does that work exactly? Do you get the Holy Spirit on your way into the water or only as you're coming back up? When you're underwater and you come up from the water, what if you tripped on the way in and you went under? Are you baptized? If a pastor's there, what if a pastor's not there? Can you be baptized by somebody that's not a pastor? Early believers didn't ask questions. They just obeyed. They didn't care exactly when they received the Holy Spirit. They're just glad to receive the Holy Spirit. They didn't care how big the crowd was that was watching. They didn't dare think about skipping baptism. They, they didn't argue about these things. Look at what they did. So those who received his word were baptized. And those were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is a big crowd. This is a major movement of the Holy Spirit. This is the first fruit of the church that you and I are now in. Look at the key word here. So. Therefore. Because of what we just said, they received the word, they repented, they were baptized, and guess what happens next? 3,000 souls are added to the church, spiritual souls. The Holy Spirit had given birth to 3,000 people in that moment. They're now new creatures born in the Holy Spirit. But we're messed up in the way we look at things. Nowadays, people teach you can, you can become a Christian without repenting. That you can become a Christian without having the Holy Spirit. How many times do you hear, just say a prayer and receive Jesus? You can keep living your life. You won't go to hell. You said that prayer. Remember, you had the goosebumps. You said the prayer. You asked Jesus, come on. You didn't really understand what that meant. You didn't feel that bad about your sin, but you said the prayer, so you're saved. Come on, join our church. Volunteer. Kids need ministry people. The only prayer that saves you is one of repentance, brokenness, agreeing with the Holy Spirit where you've been and what you've done, begging Jesus to save you because you know you deserve death. So the first century audience repented. And this is a scary part. I'm afraid many people have skipped this step. When the gospel's proclaimed by the Holy Spirit and through God's people, many, if not most, will reject it. They did in this moment. Some immediately said they're drunk. Every time I preach the gospel, just almost every week, some people leave. Some people walk out while I'm talking. Others wait until I'm done. I can see it in their eyes. They check out. People don't want to hear. 
what the Holy Spirit has for them. They want to hear what they want to hear. So they leave until they find a church that will make them feel good and allow them to stay in their sins. They don't have to repent because they're not guilty. They don't have to repent because they don't have any problems. We'll just change God's word so that that's not a problem anymore. Now you don't have to repent. There are tons of churches. Sadly, there are tons of churches and they're easy to find. You can go across the street. Now, most pastors I know know that if you demand people repent, it's hard to grow a church. It's not what people want to hear. At least a church the way America envisions one. I'm concerned that many churches are full of people who've been taught a lie, who believe they're saved when they're not. Their pastors were instructed by God to teach the word in season and out of season, and they've catered the whims of the people. They've allowed their church to be run by a seeker instead of the Holy Spirit. They're more concerned about offending a non-believer than they are about worshiping the Holy Spirit. They're called churches, but they're not churches of Jesus Christ. They preach a gospel of comfort, not repentance. Timothy, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit. They repented. Not so much now. Jesus says, hey, follow me. And we look at him and go, no, no, you follow me. I'll bring you along where I'm going, Jesus. You come with me. And the church says, hey, that's a good idea. That way you can be happy. You don't have to change anything. You can keep going where you're going. You won't be upset with the church. The church will grow. Take Jesus with you. Do whatever you want to do. He loves you. He'll forgive you for it. You may need him, particularly towards the end. Besides, God just wants you to be happy. Isn't that why Jesus came? Just wants you to be happy. God wants you to be rich. Guys, that's not the message of Jesus Christ. We were never told to have Jesus follow us on a path we're deciding. We were never told to ask him to bless our decisions that we've already made. It's a lie straight from hell aimed at misleading people into believing they're saved when they're not. That's not repentance. It's not following Jesus. Do you know what defines those who follow Jesus? They actually follow him. You look at their lives and you're like, yeah, that's what Jesus would do. Sure enough, look, they're following him. We get to a point, the flashpoint in our spiritual walk, where we have to go, you know what, God, I, I, something's, I, I want to follow you. Yeah, I've been doing these things. I thought I had a better way of doing life. I don't want to just have Jesus with me. I want to be just like him. I want to turn from the mess I'm in, and, and I want to go where you're going. I don't even know where that is, but that's where I want to go. Let me share with you something important about repentance. It only occurs in the safety of love. 
Repentance can only occur in the safety of love. When you experience the love of the Holy Spirit, when you're going along and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just starts to move in your heart, and you begin to feel that unconditional love of God for the first time ever, you get an overwhelming sense of peace, a supernatural sense of acceptance. It's the first time you and I have ever actually really experienced unconditional love. There's something about that moment when God says, I know what you've done, but look at how much I love you. And you're just flooded with his love. That's how the Holy Spirit draws people to him. You're flooded with the love of God and you're not even sure what's going on. That love creates a safe place for repentance. You see, most of us have this picture of God up there waiting to zap us. And if we don't confess just right, or if we repeat our sins, or if we keep doing something he doesn't want us to do, he's just waiting for a reason to zap us. You will always feel that way unless you feel the love of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit pours out his love on you, you just know it's gonna be okay. It's a safe place. God's overwhelming love is the safety net of our confessions. If you skip repenting, you miss out on the incredible acceptance of Christ and the full sense of forgiveness. It's in repentance that you become fully exposed, totally vulnerable, and yet fully embraced and accepted. You see, Satan wants to tell you, if you agree with God on the things you've done, he'll hate you. He'll punish you. Holy Spirit says, look, I love you so much. I already know that stuff. I'm still here. Why don't we talk about it? Let's see if we can move you to a higher place. So in the lap of the Holy Spirit, fully bathed in unconditional love that comes straight from God, I can sit in the lap of the Holy Spirit and own the sins that I've done. Because that relationship is safe, I, I can tell God, you know what, I've been worshiping me and using you. God, I, I've done some horrible things. I've hurt other people. I've hurt myself. I hurt your heart, God. I own it all. No one else did it. No circumstances are to blame for it. There's no excuses. I'm selfish, God. I'm self-centered. I'm arrogant. I'm prideful. And I've been your enemy my whole life. I deserve to go to hell. If I were you, God, I would already have sent me there. I don't know why you still have me here. I've worshiped me, I've worshiped comfort, I've worshiped public opinion, I've worshiped money, I've worshiped fame. I've bowed down to a lot of altars, but never you, God. You see, repenting means to fully own what you've done and why you did it. No excuses. You hate what your sin has done. You hate it like you gotta get it out of you. You see, the problem is we have made sin like a little blemish that we wash off. Can I just tell you, when you think of sin, I want you to think of cancer. When I tell people they have cancer, they always ask the same two questions. What's it gonna do to me, and how do we get rid of it? What's it gonna do to me, how do I get rid of it? 
When God convicts you of a sin that you're doing, what's it gonna do to me? How do I get rid of it? We have to approach the sin in our lives like cancer. It's gonna destroy us. Repentance brings you to that flashpoint moment when the Holy Spirit reveals the truth about what's going on, the truth about your future, and you have a cancer of sin in you that's gonna grow. And you were born with it, and it's fatal. But there's a cure. You can be born in the Holy Spirit. You can receive the Holy Spirit and be born again, this time empowered with the cure for your sin. No longer terminal, now eternal. Not perfect, but now no longer under a death sentence. No longer seeking hospice, but seeking life. How do we do that? Repent. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you become all in. Tell him, I wanna be holy just like Jesus. I, I, I don't just hate the punishment of sin, I hate the sin that I'm doing. I hate it when I can't stop doing this. God, I need your power to change the person I am so I'll stop doing this. I can't do it myself. Holy Spirit, work with me, help me. I don't need improvement in my power to overcome temptation. I need you to change the very person I am so I won't be tempted at all. Yet some people teach that you can be a follower of Jesus without following him. It makes no sense to me. Jesus will warn us about this. I think it's the scariest verse in the Bible. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We're gonna get back to that verse in this series. There's a lot to unpack in that verse. But notice something very important right now. These people claim to follow Jesus. They seemed to have the gifts of the Spirit. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They seemed to have God's power in them, but they never knew him. In fact, Jesus says they were workers of lawlessness. Can I just tell you, we are instructed in God's word to test the spirits. Many people, when you start talking about the spiritual gifts, get wowed with the gifts. Wow, that's great. I wish I had that gift. And, and oh, can you, can you teach me how to speak in tongues? I would love to be able to speak in tongues. Wish I had that gift. And we miss the very point that anybody can look like a follower of Christ. You have to let the Holy Spirit and you discern where you are. Look at what Paul says in Corinthians. And what I'm doing, I'll continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. In other words, Paul's saying, look, I know there's other people out there saying they follow Jesus. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Just because you see something that you think is of God, you can't just surrender to that person and go, oh, you must be a follower of Jesus. The Spirit in you will scream at you. You've got to pay attention to what the Spirit in you is doing. 
If the Holy Spirit is connected, if you're there, if you're with him every day, you're, you're in your quiet time, you're in the word, you will immediately resonate inside either this is of God, praise God, or this is not. Holy Spirit teaches all things, reveals all things. There's only one way to discern if something's of God. You have to ask the Holy Spirit. Is that you? I'm watching what's happening here. Is that you, God? And then you got to trust what you say. Jesus offers a new way of life. He says, look, you want to you change your life? I, I have a better way of living. I can give you fulfillment. Everything about me is better than anything about you. I'm what you've been looking for your whole life, he says. That emptiness you feel, the Holy Spirit says, I'm the only one that can fill that for you. Everything else you try will fall short, and it already has. I'm worth all you have, the Spirit says. Come follow me. No one, no one, no human, no person can be a follower of Christ without first repenting. There's a brokenness that happens. It's not a judgment brokenness. It's sweetly broken, wholly surrendered. Because you experience the love of God, because you finally get a sense of how much he loves you, that relationship is safe enough for you to be who you really are and admit to God who you really are. And once you get honest with God in that flashpoint moment, everything changes because there's no secrets anymore. You're not lying to yourself. You're not lying to God. You're open. You're vulnerable. You're spiritually naked. And your father says, I love you. And once you experience that, then all the guilt, the shame, the fear goes away. And you reach a spiritual level in your walk where you're all in. But you have to repent. Our sins are disgusting. And Jesus' holiness is everything. Like those in the first century and millions of people since then, they turn to God and say, what am I to do? What am I supposed to do? And the answer has never changed since the day Peter said it. Repent. I agree with God. I don't just hate the penalty of sin. I hate sin itself. God, get it out of me. It's a cancer. It's killing me. It's killing my relationships. It's killing my children. It's killing the joy I was supposed to have, the peace I was supposed to have. Get this ugliness out of me, God. It's going to destroy me. I want to stop lying, God. I want to stop lusting. I want to stop being greedy. I hate my selfishness, God. I want you to remove those things from me. Take them away. Take them far away. Make me a new person. God, I admit I do these things, but I also admit I don't have the power to make them go away. You do. Please forgive me, God. And then what happens is over time, that guilt, that shame, judgment just sort of fades away unless you don't do what God tells you to do. So we cry out to God, give me your spirit. 
Not so I can avoid hell, but so I can live in Christ. I want to die to my old self. I want the life that Jesus promised. I want to repent. I want to turn around. I want to be pure. I want to be holy. I want to be just like Jesus. And in order to accomplish that, I'll go anywhere, God. I'll do anything. I'll pay any price. I'll do anything. Just don't leave me. I'll surrender, God, to whatever you want to do. Now, you may have been following Jesus for a long time. And maybe you've never actually prayed that prayer because you're afraid of what he'll do. But at some point in your spiritual walk, you have to realize you're all in. And in that moment, you have to lay fully exposed, fully open, until the Savior who loves you And tell him, I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll pay any price. Just lead me and I'll follow. It's the next step. It's a prayer we need to pray every single day. You're the potter, God. Here I am, I'm the clay. Do whatever you want. Just don't leave me. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your spirit. I thank you, God, for your word, for your truth. I pray, God, right now in this moment that the spirit wants to do work in this room. There are some who know that we just need to get honest with God. Maybe we've repented, but we've never actually repented of that sin the one we've kept walled off, the one that's been quiet, the one that we don't talk to anybody about and only we and God know. But maybe, just maybe, Spirit, you can pour your love out enough in this room to make it a safe place to finally deal with those issues so that we can come to you without fear, without shame, because we've exposed everything and we've trusted you to deal with it. So God, I don't know what's going on in this room right now, but I know there are people, many, almost all of us, who have sins that we need to own. Things we've done that we need to repent of. And we need to receive your forgiveness. So in the next few moments, don't worry about what anybody else is doing in this room. Don't worry about what people think about you. Don't worry about anything. Just get alone with the Holy Spirit and do whatever he instructs you to do. And we ask it in Jesus' name.